Hey, you're listening to Cut for Time, a podcast from Faith Church located on the north side of Indianapolis. My name is Claire Kingsley. Each week, I'll sit down with one of our preaching pastors to discuss their Sunday sermon. Cut for Time is a look behind the scenes of sermon preparation, and they'll share with us a few things that we didn't hear from the sermon on Sunday. Thanks for listening. We're doing it. We're rolling. It's recording. It's recording. Thanks, Joey. Um, All right. So you get to continue this beginning story of Paul. And um, we just met him like three Mm -hmm. sermons ago. And now Mm -hmm. years have passed magically, which we will cover. (laughs) And we've time traveled um, into a new story. One of the first stories we hear about the ministry of Paul. Yeah, right. So give us the lowdown. What happened? Yeah. So we're in Acts 9. I think I mentioned Sunday. It's like four parts, you know, to um, Saul's story as he's introduced here with a, with a brief prologue. You know, he's there at Stephen's, uh, the martyring, the stoning of Stephen. So uh, we're back here, right? He's met Jesus on the road. Ananias has come to him and uh, laid hands on him, healed him. This is part three of um, Saul's immediate ministry. And then part four, he goes down to Jerusalem, interacts with some of the apostles there. So Yeah. So what we're doing is looking at Saul's kind of earliest ministry. You've got a guy who is zealous for, and and I'm using the word zealous specifically, I'll come back to why in a bit, but we've got this guy who is zealous for um, the traditions, for the Jewish way of life, for the worship of Yahweh, the one true God for Torah and temple. Right. And he, and so he sees this upstart movement that believes that the Messiah has come and that the Messiah is Jesus, the Jesus from Nazareth, the one who was crucified. He sees this as totally blasphemous. I mean, this is the kind of thing that is liable to bring God's judgment, not his blessing. This is, this cannot be tolerated. And so he starts this persecution movement, um, or is at least a key player in it, ultimately to the point where he's, he's overseeing executions. He is, um, He's got authorization from chief priests to to go up to other synagogues, other centers of Jewish life and find other people who are followers of Jesus as Messiah, followers of the way, and are going to drag them back to Jerusalem to stand trial for blasphemy, essentially. Um, And it's on the way that he has this huge vision of Jesus, sees the, he, he describes it later as seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus, the Messiah. Um, and so he has this vision of God and it turns out, oh, it's Jesus. Uh, what do I do with that? It shatters everything. It makes perfect sense of everything that he's always hoped for, but in a whole totally different way. So anyway, he wants people to know, right? Um, cause this is who he is. That he's this, he's in his like mid twenties, probably at this point. Okay. I mean, I remember me in my mid twenties, um he is passionate right and he wants people to and why do they not get it why why can't they see it the way i can see it and mm-hmm. so you know we immediately get these stories of um proclaiming jesus in the synagogues he's the son of god right people are amazed um amazed that he had such an about face um but there's some hints in the text here of saul's zealousness coming through he's uh increasing in strength he's confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus, he's proving Jesus was the Christ, right? This isn't um, like, this isn't like nuanced, sensitive discussion. This is guys, why don't you get this? And, and it, you know, I'm borrowing a little bit from where Jeff's going next week. Like Saul comes down to Jerusalem, goes right back into the synagogue. He was part of before and immediately begins disputing with them to the point where like what had been kind of a peaceful coexistence now suddenly flares up again into conflict. And the apostles are like, Hi, Saul. Welcome. 
please go back home to Tarsus. Like we've got this. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so he's, he's <laughs> zealous, he's passionate, he's arrogant, he's quick witted. He's, he's good at explaining things, or at least thinks he's good at explaining things. And he's fast, uh, fast, fast on his feet, I think. And all of that causes problems for him. And we were looking at some of those problems uh, this week, some of those early interactions in Damascus and how ultimately it led to his escape. And, and we spent quite a bit of our time, admittedly not in the text here, but reading other areas where Paul is reflecting back on it, on this mm-hmm. experience and his own reflections back of like, uh, have I ever told you about the time, you know, my first missionary appointment where like I I did it so bad I had to escape in the middle of the night so I wouldn't be killed? Like, yeah, he's looking yeah. back on it going, okay, I've learned a lot in the yeah. decades since then. And so we see, you know what, there is a process and time is a part of that in mm-hmm. sanctification, right? Like when yep. you come to the, know the Lord, it doesn't automatically, you're not glorified. You right. are not fully made righteous. Like it is, it takes time. And yep. Paul also needed yeah. time to be pruned. And so this is just one of those examples. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just like what we all go through. So I used right. a, uh, for those who didn't hear the sermon, I used a, a line from, um, a book, a line that really stuck with me where a guy's talking about his pastor who's talking about how his life is falling apart and like he's burnt out and his church staff doesn't know what they're doing and his wife has stopped going to their church, which is a big red flag mm. and that something's not right. And he's like, oh, I realize like I'm doing this to myself because he, the way he puts it is Jesus may have been in my heart, but my Italian grandfather is in my bones and he was leading his staff and his wife and his church and all of this, like it's a big giant Italian family and it, it was killing him. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so our big question was, okay, Jesus may be in our hearts, but what's in our bones. Yeah. Okay. We'll come back to that a little bit later. We to will. like help people kind of um, dig into that on their own and maybe with their community kind of figuring that out. Yeah. Um, all right, before we get there, Joey, we've got actually quite a few questions that I get to throw yeah. at you today. Um, and some of them we can divide into like just textual questions and some of them are applications. So let's start with the text. Yeah. Can you tell us, do you have any idea of how many quantity, how many people like Saul were zealous and persecuting the early church? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's hard to know because it's not uh, the focus of the story Luke's trying to tell. You know, mm-hmm. he he's talking about the persecution, but almost... It seems like there's really only two reasons he brought it up. Uh, He doesn't bring it up or talk about it because it happened. That's not a good enough reason. And of course, the longest history books ever written still leave out more than they include about anything that they're talking about. But Luke brings up the persecutions in order to, A, introduce us to the character of Saul or Paul and his zealousness, but also... Um, because the persecution is what caused the church to begin moving out, you know, scattering it, sowing it out uh, into the areas around. So that's primarily what he's focusing on. So he really doesn't tell us anything else about what else is going on. We kind of get the sense, I think. So Paul was a Pharisee or Saul. He was a Pharisee, which is not a formal, you know, it's not like a formal part of Jewish governance or anything like that. It's more like a powerful interest group or a a coalition of people who sort of think in the same way about the law that want to have influence into the the Jewish governance system. So he gets authority from the chief priests to go find believers of uh, followers of Jesus in other places. And you kind of almost get the sense from it that the chief priests are like, "Uh, great, fine. Someone's going to go deal with this and it doesn't have to be us. Right. Um, Mm. So 
there there's there's probably others he has companions as he's going to damascus there's companions along the way we never find out what happens to them either um so there are others and there's a system that's enforcing all of this uh but we're just not really given a picture of um any of the other characters that are involved sure okay um all right logistically why couldn't the jews just kill him in the city rather than at the city gates <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, it may be that he had some popular support in the city. So it's more like let's nab him on his way out um, so that we can kind of make him just disappear. Um, he does. And this is this is actually interesting. Um, you know, it says it's one of his disciples who lowers him in a basket from the window, uh, the gap in the wall. Um, this is the only place in the book of Acts where the word disciples is used to refer to somebody other than followers of Jesus, in this case, followers of Saul. Of course, follow Saul, Saul follows Jesus, but um, he does have at least some support there, but there's quite a few people sort of aligned against him as well. D Damascus mm -hmm. is not 100% Jewish. It's uh, multi-ethnic, lots of different belief systems, all of that. So maybe he had some support, uh, some popular support. Maybe it was just easier to arrest him outside the city gates. Maybe it was, uh, you know, the jurisdiction issues of who's who's really doing this. I doubt that's part of it, but we don't really know just that they were watching the gates waiting for, or maybe he's just, I mean, think about ancient cities are roughly the population of Indianapolis squashed into the space between, like if you draw a square from Faith Church um, kind of over to range line, south to 86th and back, Right. It's super dense, super mm -hmm. dense, easier to hide, mazes upon mazes. So it may have just been easier to watch the gates than to go door to door to try to find him. Mm, okay. Okay. Um, all right. So back to this idea of Paul's zealousness or yes. enthusiasm, passion. Mm -hmm. There's like a way that like this connotation that we have of this idea of being zealous that seems positive. So mm -hmm. why, like, how do you know this is something that like he needed to repent of if this is like a new idea for people that mm -hmm. all needed to kind of like, I guess, temper this a little bit or whatever. Like, how did you know? And like, I don't know, explain where it comes from. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So when Paul uses the word zealous, um, it's almost a technical term, meaning he sees himself as part of a of a tradition of those who are zealous for Torah and temple. Um, so we use it just to mean, you know, enthusiasm or unbounded enthusiasm or something like that. Um, we think of it there, as like amazing. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, you're super, you know, zealous. You know, zealous means bold, right? Yes, yes. exactly. Yes. Um, but he's using because there's Old Testament resonances to the word tying back to Phineas and Elijah and some of these other characters uh, from the Old Testament. I shouldn't say characters, they're real people. These people from the Old Testament and their experiences. I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago that Phineas was one who was willing to do violence for the sake of upholding the law of God. And it, the Old Testament, he's described as being zealous for the Lord. Same thing with Elijah, right? He's slaughtering priests of Baal and and going toe to toe with people and he's zealous for the Lord. And so when Paul describes himself as zealous, it's in this tradition. And, and this isn't just a fancy word study of like, oh, look, the word zealous has showed up in different places. Like we have uh, other documents attesting to this time period that, yeah, Jewish young men who wanted to like this idea of being zealous is a common idea. 
Mm-hmm. And it, 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 we would almost like uh, call them freedom fighters or something like that. Like these are people who are willing to take up arms to enforce the ways that things should be done, even when there's some other uh, structure, governmental organ, you know, like uh, Rome <laughs> dictating that, no, it's not going to be done that way. Mm-hmm. So um, he uses the word zealous, Paul does. Saul, you know, in his later letters, he refers to himself like I'm looking at Galatians 1 right now. And he says, um, he's defending his own calling. You heard of my uh, former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Mm -hmm. He's putting himself right in this, this path. And so if you are in the, yeah, so imagine a guy who's growing up thinking that the height of the best way to obey God is to be zealous for him, to be willing to do violence for the sake of upholding the gospel and or upholding, sorry, worship of Yahweh. And then he comes to faith in Christ and learns the way of the one who refused to do violence, but ha- but allowed violence to be done to him in order to win over violence. That's a huge shift. That's a huge mental shift of what is God calling me to do? Yeah. Right. And it's why we see, I think, Saul in his early days, confounding, disputing, arguing. And then uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, because now in in Acts, we're going to shift to Peter and then we'll come back to to Saul. Um, But Saul is off the stage for 10 years. Mm -hmm. There's a silent decade where he's back home in Tarsus and he spends that decade working, tent making with his family. There may have been a fiance involved at some point. We don't really know. But essentially, he spends 10 years trying to convince the people that he loves most and the people who love him most that Jesus really is the Messiah. And Mm. from hints in the later letters, we realize he just doesn't get anywhere. I mean, he says, Mm. uh, and I forget where it is in Romans, I think he says, I would gladly, I myself would gladly take God's condemnation if only my brothers and sisters would come to know Jesus, right? He spends Mm -hmm. 10, he has 10 years with his family, not... Uh, coming to the same faith that he has that mm. really tempers the way he uh, approaches Jews in other places and the way he okay. lives out the gospel message. Okay. Are those um, like quiet, a quiet 10 years? Like, is yeah. he like taking that time to be formed and refined so that his ministry is stronger? Is like, that's what the time also God is using that time for, or is it, yeah. he's still on mission and his mission, you know, I don't know. I asked because someone asked a question of like, what would you say about, how many rough edges and uh, things yeah. need to be removed before you think Oof. that someone is ready to go out and to preach Christ to others, yeah. you know? And so like, he's making enemies, he's rough around the edges. He needs some of this um, molding and shaping a little bit mm-hmm. um, to be effective in ministry. And then like, what application does that have for somebody today? If someone comes to know the Lord and wants mm-hmm. to be like, boom, I'm heading out. Yeah. Do they need Why? 10 years of training first? Yeah, or, uh, yeah, we don't know a ton about that. That Actually, we hardly know anything about that period. What we can surmise is that Paul, of course, spent that decade in prayer. He spent that decade with family, with friends, working. I mean, we should keep in mind that Paul, so uh, rabbis, Jewish teachers, they never made a living just teaching. They were always workers or manual laborers mm-hmm. of some sort who then taught in a, you know on the side. Mm-hmm. So Saul spent 
90% of his waking hours uh, with his sleeves rolled up in a workshop, um, punching holes in leather and sewing canvas together and making tents and awnings and stuff like that and talking to people and, and interacting with people. So we know he spent 10 years working, plying his craft. He spent that time in prayer. I'm sure he spent that time in scripture over and over and over again, kind of reading the Old Testament with like the final clue dropped into place of like, oh, now it's making sense. With the lights turned on. With like the we lights turned on. Week. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. yeah. He spent those 10 years rethinking through all of, I mean, reading Genesis again and Exodus again and reading Isaiah again and reading the Psalms again and being and reading like, oh, there's a king, a righteous one who's going to get persecuted. And why do the nations, you know? argue and fight and yet all of this stuff reading it in light of having seen jesus seeing the face of god and it being jesus and he's like this changes everything so mm -hmm. those 10 years were a lot of that and it was also my family doesn't believe this like what do i do with that mm -hmm. they love me i love them they don't believe this so yeah. to the question though like how long do you how long how many rough edges need to get uh sanded off yeah. um for sure, we see, especially right away in those those three years before Saul's silent decade, right? He's involved for a lot of it in a community at Damascus. And so there's some stuff there's that we should learn from that, I think, immediately in a community. You don't figure this out on your right. own. You don't have the rough yeah. edges sanded off. If you're the only piece of sandpaper, you know, nothing's <laughs> you need other people around. Yeah. Um so there's certainly that. Um, but also at the same time, it's like, you know don't wait too long and say, well, now I have all the training and all the character and all the whatever. Now I can do it. You're still going to screw it up and accidentally mm -hmm. offend people and whatever. So get in, start, trust that God is going to work through you. Even Saul with this zealousness, with this, still this ingrained idea that, no, I got to go to bat for Jesus. Like I have to be willing to, to lose it, you know, to, to, just dominate people and like talk him into this and all of that. I mean, he still ends up with people who are following his way of understanding and reading the old Testament. It's making sense for them. Like he's still doing good ministry. Yeah. Um, but he also in the, you know, the next story that Jeff's going to cover, he shows up in Jerusalem and they're like, dude, we have it figured out. Go home. Like you're not ready for this yet. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You're not helping here. You're not helping here. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So we've got a few other application questions for you, Joey. But before we jump there, why don't you unpack this like three years? Oh, yeah. yeah. Magic time travel that we <laughs> found in this text that uh -huh. you promised everyone in your sermon that you would. That's right. We cover. better not not forget that. Yeah. So yeah. Luke in his telling of the story, he jumps ahead three years to round out Saul's story before he'll actually go back in time a little bit to cover Peter and what Peter's doing during this whole time period. Um, it says, you know, some sometime, something like, um, now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints and goes on from there. It's almost like, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem it is happening. Right. So, okay. So here's what we know. Um, in this passage we looked at, it was for some days he's with them in Damascus. For me, After many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. In Galatians 1, Paul is writing to the Galatians and he is telling them, he's like, look, you guys need to understand, I got the gospel. I didn't get it from the other apostles. I got it from Jesus himself. And it, he's basically what's happening. I like what one guy says. He says that it's like the the church in Galatia is writing to Paul and they're saying like, okay, obviously you're like, 
you're a cover artist, you're just covering something that the apostles had did. So we're going to go to appeal to them. And he's like, no, I'm, you know, you can't call up, um, oh, I just blanked on all the names. You can't call up uh, one of the Beatles and ask like, hey, how should this song be played? Paul McCartney. You can't call up Paul McCartney and ask how should this song be played and then tell somebody you're playing it wrong. He's like, no, I'm one of the original, right? Mm -hmm. So that was the analogy someone else used and I just butchered it. But in Galatians 1, he's saying, you guys need to know the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I didn't receive it from any man, nor as I taught it, I received it through a a revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's when then, for you heard of my former life in Judaism, I read that a little bit early, earlier, um, but he'd set me apart before I was born, called me by his grace, revealed his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He says in Galatians 1.16, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter and remained with him for two weeks. But I didn't see anyone else except James, the Lord's brother. Then I went into Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown um, in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. So he says he was three years in Damascus with this side journey before going to Jerusalem, which is what Jeff's going to preach next week. Mm. So that's where we get the three years thing, probably roughly around the years 80, 33 to 36 or so. Okay. Okay. So just three years after Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection, then Saul's conversion, and then his three years uh, in Damascus. Well, meanwhile, other things are happening in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So um, it it mentions he went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Depending on who you ask, Arabia could either refer to a sort of desert region straight east of Damascus uh, an area called the kingdom of the Nabataeans. And this is who the king that later, you know, tries to work with the governor and the Jewish officials in Damascus to watch the gates and all that. Um, so either he went that direction and some people assume it was like, Hey, it was a missionary journey. It's his first missionary journey. We never hear of. So either he went that direction, or I think this is more likely, even though it's kind of the minority view among scholars, he's already used the word zealous to describe himself which is, I said, Phineas, Elijah, kind of right in that storyline. And then he says, I went down into Arabia and returned again to Damascus, which is the exact same thing Elijah did after uh, the the whole thing on the mountaintop and Mount Carmel with the priests of Baal and all that. And then he's, he's fleeing for his life after that. And he goes down, he says he goes down to Arabia and then he's sent back into Damascus to mm-hmm. preach, hey, there's a new king, to proclaim that there's a new king. Um, so I... For my money, I think uh, that Saul did essentially hand in his old commission and get a new one, that he went down into Arabia, back to Mount Oreb, which is either Sinai or right nearby, and went to the place where the covenant with God was ratified and said, is this right? Now, when he says that he received the gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ, that might just mean the revelation on the side of the road. Hey, it, it was Jesus Christ was revealed to me. Or... I think more likely the way this whole story is being told is he went down to um, he went down to where the covenant was ratified at the very beginning and says, is this right? Is this the fulfillment of the covenant? Am I supposed to understand temple and Torah and all of that? And there's this revelation of Jesus Christ that no, Jesus is the Messiah. And he returns then to Damascus to proclaim there's a new king, um, just like Elijah would. I, I think Paul, he knows his Old Testament. He knows what he's saying, and he's yeah. very intentionally, I think, echoing 
that story in his own experience here. So we should understand. So a lot of people will say like, hey, Arabia, like that's a long ways to go just to find a place to pray. So it's probably that he just went east. I think that was actually the point that he was on a pilgrimage back to the beginning to find out, is this really where we're supposed to go? So that's the three years. Okay, worth it. Thank you so much for um, for filling that in for us. Um, And again, I I should say either view, the one that I, I hold or others, like it's supposition, we're doing our best guess. We don't have much else to go off of. Um, but it seems to make a lot of sense of how Paul thought of himself and his commissioning as a prophet and all that. So yeah, there you go. Okay. Thanks, Joey. All right. I've got one more question for you, Okay, um, but it's a big one. It's just this Ooh. idea of figuring out what is in our bones. Um, <laughs> and it would be really nice to say it is Jesus, but um, we know that we're, there's always work um, that mm-hmm. needs to be done in our hearts. And so could you give us some uh, tools maybe or uh, some tips on how to identify what's in our bones? And yeah. then once we identify it, how do you move forward? Oof. Yeah. So first we have to know, and knowing's half the battle, and then move forward from it, fight the battle. A um, mm-hmm. couple of resources I'd recommend um, or a couple of things you could try. Uh, number one, probably the easiest and the hardest um, I actually, I knew this question was coming. So I asked pastor Jeff this morning, like, what would you say? And this is what, what he suggests. And I thought it was brilliant. Um, just ask the people who know you best or who live with you the most, um, like, Hey, how do you experience me? Or another way to ask it in terms of figuring this thing out is like, Hey, when you see me stressed or tired or anxious or angry, like what comes out, mm-hmm. you know, what just automatically comes out, um, or, you know, what would you say I'm just sort of exuding right now? (laughs) Like when I go through the world, am I just exuding sarcasm or grievance or anger? Or I I worked in a, uh, um, at a job once, this was decades ago, where um, our entire like culture of the workplace had slowly become um, cynicism and sarcasm, which wasn't like me naturally, cynicism, um, but it was basically one guy. I mean, he was he was the leader, he was our boss, and he was always cynical and it just sort of got all of us. And I think it, it, at some point we actually had a conversation about, it. he was like, man, this is just coming out of me and this is not okay and I need to change this and it's infecting all of us and you know, that whole thing. But mm-hmm. uh, if he had ever asked us like, yeah, how do you experience me or what just kind of oozes out of me? We would have all said cynicism, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, then whatever the thing is, you kind of got to go behind it and go, okay, what's, what's behind that, right? Cynicism, what's behind it is a, I mean, it's just easier not to care. It's just so much easier not to care and to believe that I know best. Mm-hmm. So. And like, without giving too much um, power to our feelings, I've just like thought of that quote that says, like, people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people never forget the way you made them feel. Mm-hmm. And like, I, you could ask people like people you're with, like, what's it feel like to like be with me? Because wouldn't it be so nice to like walk the way Jesus walked and act the way Jesus acts. But ultimately if people feel like they didn't like interact with someone of peace, then it's like, Mm -hmm. what, then I need to totally reevaluate. What did I do? And what did I say? Because that will impact yeah, how the way to make you make mm-hmm. them feel. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Not that it, that's scripture, but 
No, no, but it reminds me of, it's like a classic story. I have no idea who told it first or where, but it's somebody says like, I went to a dinner party and I met so-and-so and at the end of the night, you know, talking to them because they're sitting next to me all night long at the end of the night, I felt like they were just the smartest person I'd ever met. So, but I went to another dinner party and I sat next to this other person and I talked with them all night long. At the end of the night, I thought I was the smartest person that I'd ever met. And it was just all like how the person you interacted with, like, were they all just completely looking for every opportunity to talk about themselves or put themselves into it? Or were they like really drawing out of you, you know, who you are? So it's that whole, man, how, how does interacting with me leave you feeling is a really great question. Yeah. 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 And then I'd right, say so also that's the first thing. That's yeah, first thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Pete Scazzaro's book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality is great. Um, our staff read the leadership version of it and I'd read the spirituality one before. Um, really good. Even if all it does for you, I think on page like 42 is a list of primary emotions. And I remember the first time I, I got to that page and went, what? This There's is so super many. helpful. There's so many emotions, like the six primary emotions and all the ones that come off of it. I was like, I had no many, I had no idea there were so many feelings. It was, it was a revelation. It was amazing. Um, <laughs> so it, it, that book is really helpful uh, as well. Cause you can see somebody else wrestling through it and seeing what they're doing. Be like, Oh, I do that too. You know? Um, and then actually getting over it. There's a lot of good stuff in that book to help you. I shouldn't say getting over it, but identifying it and then slowly breaking the pattern, the habits. Mm -hmm. um, that's really good. I also, it's a totally different kind of area, but I also really like a book called glittering vices. It's about the seven deadly sins yeah. and it's about how each of those um, kind of what sort of form of pride each of them are taken in our hearts, causing us to try to get things that we can only get from Jesus, but trying to get them some other way. Yeah. Okay. That's a great place to start. I'll go ahead and link those in the show notes, Joey, so oh, people sweet. could just uh, find them a little bit more easily. Yeah. And um, that's a wrap on Cut for Time. Thanks for answering Oof. all those questions. Thank you guys yeah, that was for fun. submitting questions. It's so fun when people add to our conversation in that way. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Joey. Thanks for your time. Yeah. No problem. That was great. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Cut for Time. If you wish to submit questions to our pastors following their sermon, you can email them to podcast at faithliveitout.org or text them into our Faith Church texting number, and we'll do our best to cover it in the week's episode. If this conversation blessed you in any way, we encourage you to share it with others. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week.